Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. We read, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. In Mark 14, we see the several roles of Jesus, the servant. He is the honored guest in verses 1 through 11. He is the gracious host in verses 12 through 26. He is the submissive son in verses 27 through 42. And now the servant will become the obedient prisoner in verses 43 through 72. In Mark's gospel, the betrayal and the arrest and the desertion all seem to take place in the space Of just a few moments. And it provides us with a shocking study. In the fragile nature of human character. We have our cast of characters. Judas the traitor. We have an arresting mob. We have a misguided follower of Jesus. We have the disciples of Jesus. Their resolution broken. We have Jesus himself, what Barclay calls the one who in the midst of confusion is an oasis of serenity. In the garden, Jesus chose to submit to the father's will. And remember what the father's will is. It is a cross. Not only will Jesus submit To the betrayal of a friend, he will submit to arrest. He will submit to the mob. And he submits alone. We all make choices. Each and every one of us, as we will make our way through the day... We will submit to the Lord or we will resist the Lord. Which will it be? Cup or sword? Resistance, submission. Even now, that's what Jesus wants to teach. Do we conquer and control our circumstances or do we serve the Lord Jesus? Do we submit 
to the Lord Jesus in the circumstance that we find ourselves in. And we begin with the two-faced betrayer. Look at verse 43. And immediately while he was speaking, speaking what? Remember the third prayer, verse 41? Are you still sleeping? Wake up! Are you resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas, it says in verse 43, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs. They came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So why does Judas have a great multitude? It could be that the religious leaders expect Jesus and the disciples to put up a fight. Or that Jesus will perform some kind of miracle in order to engineer his escape. As a matter of fact, later, remember in verse 49, Jesus will say, you've had plenty of opportunities to arrest me. Why are you doing it right at this moment? And again, John's gospel, chapter 18, verse 3. And by the way, the companion passages are Matthew 26, 47, Luke 22, 47, John 18, 3. It says, Judas then. Having received a band of men and officers. In the old King James it says, cometh thither. And by the way, the word translated, he received a band in John's gospel is a technical term. It's a military term. In the ancient world of Rome, they had Roman legions. And the Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men and then auxiliary troops. By the time of Jesus' day, there were between 25 and 28 Roman legions that were strategically placed throughout the the empire. Now, the reason why this becomes important to you is because this is a military operation. This is no casual arrest by local law enforcement. A Roman legion with 6,000 men, a sperion, is one-tenth of a legion Think 600 well-trained soldiers. This is a military exercise. By the way, if you've ever been involved with law enforcement and they send five people to arrest you, they send 10 people to arrest you, they send 100 people to arrest you, they send 600 people to arrest you, what do you think is on their mind? Now, couple the soldiers and the chief priests with the temple guard. And we're talking about an enormous crowd of people. And Jesus calmly waits their arrival. But I want you to entertain a question just for a moment. I want you to just pause in the text and just think just for a moment, what would have happened if Jesus chose to resist? Could Jesus simply by sheer determination, kill everyone who's there? The answer is yes. And you are mistaken. You do not understand the identity of Jesus or the mission of Jesus. If for even a moment you suspect that he couldn't have resisted, he could have resisted. But remember what the Bible says, that Jesus came not to kill people. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus isn't, Interested in killing people? Jesus is interested in saving people. And so, 
Jesus awaits. By the way, note what the text says. The enemies of Jesus come with swords and clubs. In John's gospel, it it mentions swords and clubs and lanterns. I'm going to suggest to you it is Passover. It is pitch black, but yet there is a Passover moon. Passover takes place when the moon is full. But by the way, can any weapon, ancient or modern, foreign or domestic, eliminate Jesus? Has there been a weapon that's been made by a human being that has the ability to get rid of Jesus? You see, scholars today, they use, instead of swords and clubs and lamps, they think that they're using human reason. They think that they're using human understanding. They call it progress. Other candidates include so-called scholarship and education and science and psychology. And as valuable as these weapons are, they're no match for Jesus. No amount of human reason and human excuse is going to make Jesus go away. But there is a pronounced desire on the part of an unbelieving culture that wants to make Jesus go away. Just a little note. Do any of these weapons pose a threat for you to do God's will? Have you ever listened to somebody and they said, you're insane. This is crazy. You're talking crazy. But the Bible says this is what I need to do. Are you kidding? You actually believe the Bible? This is what God has shown me. What? You believe that there's a personal God who speaks to you? Remember, Jesus is submitted to the will of God because he understands the word of God. In Luke and here in Mark, we realize that temple guards and Roman soldiers, along with Jewish religious leaders, have united in the one and only time that we're aware of that they ever united over anything, and that's to get rid of Jesus. Liberal and conservative, believer or make-believer and unbeliever will unite together in order to try and create an atmosphere where you don't love them and you don't trust them. It's a picture of our world joining forces in in an attempt to get rid of Jesus. And in verse 44, look what it says now. His betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss... He is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. Now, the word translated signal in the Old King James token, it's the Greek word sisamon. It's only here in the Greek New Testament. We might translate this, he had arranged a signal with them. The reason why this becomes important is because in Matthew chapter 26, verse 48, it simply calls this a simeon, a sign. And thus it's interpreted as something that Judas had carefully arranged beforehand. But here is part of the point that this signal not only implies, but it confirms pre-arrangement, pre-meditation. This is a military operation with specific signals in order to capture Jesus. And he says, whomever I kiss. The verb 
is phileo. In all three synoptic gospels, it's used in connection with the betrayal of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 48, Luke 22, chapter chapter 22, verse 47. Elsewhere, this word is used 22 times in the New Testament. And by the way, it's always translated, except for in those places, it's always translated love, an affectionate kind of love, brotherly love. It's the love that families have for one another. And by the way, in the very next verse, in verse 45, where it says, and it says, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. It's kata phileo. With the prefix, it means to kiss fervently or continuously or in a display of unmitigated affection. We might think of the kiss in verse 44 as the customary kiss of respect that a disciple gives to a teacher. But in verse 45, this is the gushing, effusive kissing like Italian people have when when you go to visit grandma and grandpa, Nona and Nona. When I was a little kid, you know, when we would go to my grandma's house, she would grab me and she would kiss the top of my head and she would kiss my eyes and she would kiss my cheeks. She would kiss my 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 lips and she would just kiss me and kiss me so that you no, no back off <laughs> time out it's that kind of kissing that we're talking about in verse 45 in effect Judas is saying when he says seize him and lead him away safely in effect Judas is saying follow me Look, stay close to me. Make no mistake. Once I identify your man, seize him. Make sure that he doesn't escape. Don't underestimate his powers. He might try to escape. Hold on tight. Guard him well. We've already talked about why Judas may have wanted to betray him. Was he disappointed that Jesus had not actually plotted to overthrow the government and establish an independent rule? Was it pride? Was it thirst for power? Was he overcome by greed? Did he figure that there was no way that he would be named secretary of the treasury in the Jesus administration? How is it possible that Judas will trade his soul for the Savior? But he will. As so many will. So many people who want something other than Jesus and Judas will lose all of his friends and his companions. They will hate him. As a matter of fact, the rest of the text seems that his very presence contaminates you. My father would say, sheep say ba, dogs say ba wow, cats say meow. Hey, but what kind of sound does a rat make? Believer, unbeliever, everybody hates betrayal. Betrayal is repugnant. And remember, betrayal only takes place from people you care about. But there's something really repugnant when the means of betrayal is the method that's usually intended to communicate affection and loyalty. 
In the ancient days, a slave would sometimes kiss the master's feet. A defeated enemy would kiss the conqueror as a sign of respect and submission. A servant would kiss the back of the hand of the master. And a favored servant would kiss the palm of the hand. And by the way, in the ancient culture of Greece and Rome, a pupil could never kiss his teacher. Unless the teacher initiated the show of affection. The teacher had to extend the invitation. And when Judas betrays Jesus, he becomes a man without a home and without friends, without peace and without a future. Even the unbeliever knows this. You say the word Judas and even the unbeliever understands what that name means. And it says in verse 45, as soon as he had come. Immediately he went up to him and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Read, kissed fervently. Rabbi is a Hebrew word carried over even into the Greek language. We might translate this master, master, and kissed him fervently. And there are any number of ways that Judas might have betrayed Jesus, but he picks this way. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, we have a, a little insight. In Matthew's gospel, tw- Matthew 26, 50, it says that the response that Jesus gives to Judas is, Friend, why have you come? Now this is important to, to each and every one of us. In calling Judas friend, do you understand what's happening? He's extending. He is reaching out to him even at the moment of betrayal. Even at the moment of betrayal, he is reaching out to him. He is is giving him an opportunity even at this particular moment to change his mind. And because Judas goes through with it. Now think this through. Jesus reaches out to the betrayer. And this is maybe some of the most important thing that I can tell you this morning. Because he reaches out to the betrayer. So can you. So can I. You see, the kiss is a sacred symbol in many cultures. It was to use it to set in motion the death of Jesus makes this permanent impression on the world. But Jesus reaches out to him. Judas is a hypocrite. Judas is playing a role. Judas is playing the role of a faithful, affectionate disciple. And sometimes you will have in your life people who play the role of personal, affectionate friend. You might experience it from your husband or your wife, from your children or from your friend, from a workmate, from someone who characterized themselves in friendship and relationship and then they betrayed you. Sometimes when someone is committed to betraying you, sometimes the only thing that you can do is just simply say what you do, do quickly. Judas is a hypocrite. The night is dark. But there's something even darker. As empty and as dark as the night 
is Judas' soul is darker still. It is wicked and empty. And in a few hours, the sun is going to come up, but the sun is never going to come up in Judas' soul. It's going to remain empty and evil forever. It says in verse 46, then they laid their hands on him and took him. In Matthew 26, 50, in the companion verse, it says, then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. But the important thing as you're reading verse 46 is remember, Jesus allows the betrayal to take place and he doesn't resist it. Jesus allows the mob to take him. Then they laid their hands on him. But Jesus is allowing even this to take place. It's at this point, by the way, in the narrative that I think that Peter is standing right next to him. He pulls out his sword. He sees the person closest. He goes to chop off that person's head, but he hits the ear and he cuts his ear off. It says in verse 47, and one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant by the high priest and cut off his ear. Which one do you think it is? (laughs) We already know. Peter wants to remain anonymous in Mark's gospel. We all know it's Peter. We know from Luke's gospel that it's him who draws the sword. We also know the name of the servant, Malchus, from John chapter 18, verse 10. And what Peter does, in effect and in a way, is very courageous but foolish. It's courageous because he sees in this circumstance something that he cannot stand. But why is it foolish? Because, again, we don't fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, that the weapons of our warfare are spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds. In other words, there is a battle that's taking place and the battle that's taking place in the supernatural realm for the souls of human beings. It isn't a physical battle. Warren Wiersbe writes, he used the wrong weapon at the wrong time for the wrong purpose with the wrong motive. Had Jesus not healed Malchus, Peter would have been arrested as well. And instead of three crosses at Calvary, there would have been four. That would have changed everything. And there he hung between the two malefactors. Oh, and there's Peter. It's not God's will for Peter to die that night or even the next day. He has a plan and a purpose for Peter. And you'll remember that the Lord rebukes Peter and he performs a miracle to heal the high priest's servant in Luke chapter 22, verse verse 51. Because remember, defiance is burning in his heart. The time for resistance has come. Peter is striking a blow for freedom and the liberation of Israel. And if these people are so foolish as to attack the Lord, they're going to have to answer to me. Think about it. He's willing to take on. Now, remember what I've already told you. 
There's not just 10 soldiers. There's not just 20 soldiers. There's not just 100 soldiers. There's not even 200 or 300 or 400 or 500. You're getting closer when you think of 600 human beings that he's going to have to go sword to sword. And in Luke 22:51, Jesus says, permit even this. And he touches his ear. Can you imagine? Does Jesus take the bloody ear from off the ground and go, oh, what tragedy? What trial? My, my father used to, no body, no crime. If the, if the ear is completely restored, what can you do? When Peter attempts to save Jesus and he winds up cutting off the ear of the high priest. It prompts a miracle from the Savior. But it reminds me of something. In ministry, sometimes this happens. To me, this becomes a symbol, if you will, of my attempt to do what I thought was right. But it wasn't from the Lord. It wasn't the timing of the Lord. It wasn't what God wanted. I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am for the grace of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus, who in spite of my wrong thinking and my wrong effort, that sometimes I have said and done things that haven't helped but have harmed people. And there's Jesus, even though he doesn't have to, cleans up after my mistakes. Do you know what you did was really wrong and really stupid and really inappropriate? Does Jesus have an obligation to clean up after us? No. But sometimes in his grace and sometimes in his mercy, because I won't speak for you. I'll just speak for me. Sometimes when I say things and do things that are so completely inconsistent with what God wants. That the Lord in his mercy and grace, in spite of my wrong thinking and wrong efforts, will bring healing to those that I've harmed. Jesus will not resist the cross. He will not resist being betrayed. He will not resist them grabbing him and taking him. And he even fixes the wrong thinking and the wrong actions of someone that he's grown to love. And look at this calm in the midst of the confusion. Look at verse 48. It says, then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? By the way, the word translated robber is the Greek noun lustus. And that may not mean a whole lot to you. But in that culture and society, in the Greek world, world a common thief was called a kleptus. You know that. That word it, we have. It's, there's a word that's descended in our own language in English. When we think of a kleptomaniac, this is a person who compulsively steals. But lustus is a different word. Lustus is a word that describes a violent criminal. As a matter of fact, Josephus uses the word in his writing lustus to describe the Jews who were revolutionaries against the Roman government. So the NIV, I think, translates this. Am I leading a rebellion? 
which I think really captures part of the point. In other words, they're treating him like a terrorist who is a profound and severe threat. Why do you come with me with weapons of war? Are you afraid of me? Are you, do you think that I'm sort of some sort of threat to you? And for many people, they, they're terrified of Jesus. They're terrified of what Jesus might do. Moms and dads and brothers and sisters who have had children come home and say, guess what? I've become a Christian. And they go, what? That's crazy talk. The pastor who rejected Islam and embraced Christianity and began to serve the Lord and then goes back to Iran. He's captured and threatened with death. Seven people are put in prison for seven years because they switched from from Islam to Coptic Christianity. In John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 5 through 8, you'll remember when Judas shows up with the detachment of the of the troops, Jesus steps forward. He asks the question, who are you looking for? They answered. Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them in the text, it says, I am. I'm he or I am. Now, I want you to think about what happens next. When Jesus, is it possible that at that point when they say, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Yahweh. I am that I am. I am. He speaks the unpronounceable name of God. 500 or 600 Roman soldiers who don't know Jesus from Adam. He just simply pronounces the phrase I am and they're all knocked on their back. It is like an electromagnetic pulse goes out through the crowd. He just simply speaks and everyone within the perimeter of his voice literally falls flat on the ground. And when the dust clears and the smoke settles and they are able to get up again. He asks them again. Tell me again who it is you're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth, I'm sure they said with a much quieter voice. And Jesus says in verse 8 of John chapter 18, verse 8, he says, I told you that it's me. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. What in the world happened? I'm going to suggest to you that some indescribable glory and power emanates from the person of Jesus knocking the soldiers on the ground in the blinding confusion. They're swept off their feet. And in verse eight, I don't see it as the plea from a desperate master who's trying to save his disciples. I see it as a warning, a solemn warning, not a threat, but a promise. And I'm here to tell you that if I were a Roman soldier at this point, I'm going to be terrified of Jesus. Because no matter how many swords and pikes and people that you have, if Jesus decides to resist, then you're in big, big trouble. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's at this point 
that Judas gets up off the ground and begins to kiss him profusely. Jesus, 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 Rabbi, Rabbi. Not just simply as a sign of betrayal, but of desperation. And in verse 49, he says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. In effect, Jesus is saying, what's changed? I was with you in broad daylight. I was teaching in the temple. Why didn't you arrest me? Were you afraid that the people would protest? Were you afraid that the people might resist? Were you afraid of the unpleasant publicity and the operation has a much better chance of success if all of my friends are in bed and if all of my friends are asleep. But remember what Jesus says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. William MacDonald writes, the scripture must be fulfilled, which prophesied that he would be betrayed, Psalm 41, 9, that he must be arrested, Isaiah 53, 7, that he is going to be manhandled, Psalm 22, verse 12. He's going to be forsaken, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And again, why is this important for you? Jesus takes the will of God from the scriptures. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus will come. He must be arrested. He must be killed. He will be raised from the dead. Why is this important to you? Because that's where you find the will of God for your life. What does the scriptures have to say about the will of God for your life? It's the will of God that none perish, but all have eternal life. It's the will of God that Everyone comes to Jesus and they experience his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness and his love. That's God's will. It's God's will that you go to heaven and not hell. It's God's will that you be happily married, not miserable. It's God's will that you walk in purity and decency and humility and encouragement to one another. This is no accident. Jesus isn't taken off guard. He's not the victim of circumstance. He has allowed the betrayer to betray him. He has allowed the mob to take him. J.C. Ryle writes, The wrath of his enemies, his rejection by his own people, his being dealt with as a malefactor, his being condemned by the assembly of the wicked, all of it was foreknown, all of it was foretold. And then Ryle writes that this outworking was a part of God's great plan to provide atonement for the sin of the world. He encouraged the readers that we take great comfort that God's plan and God's order and God's wisdom is in control. Ryle writes, quote, the course of this world may often be contrary to our wishes. The position of the church may often be very unlike what we desire. The wickedness of worldly men and the inconsistencies of believers may often afflict our sensibilities, but there is a hand above us moving the vast expanse of the universe, making all things work together for good for the those who love him, God is in control of the universe. And God is in control of your circumstances, even though it doesn't necessarily feel that way. God is in control. And because God is in control, he is working and you will 
resist his will or you will submit to his will. I was reading that for some people, as they find themselves in difficult circumstances, they believe a lie. The lie being, well, God must be punishing me. God must hate me. The truth, everyone suffers sometimes. And sometimes God will allow us to suffer in order for us to mature. Some people experience a setback and a failure and they say, God will never use me again. I'm disqualified for God's purposes. But the truth, Satan loves to tell this lie because he wants you to give up. Remember, he's come to kill and steal and destroy, like it says in John 10, 9. But God is always ready to come and provide encouragement and hope and forgiveness and a way out and blessing. The lie, God is fed up with me. The truth, God isn't a human like you are. Yes, it makes perfect sense that you would be fed up with each other. But God doesn't hold a grudge. The Bible says that his love is from everlasting to everlasting. In Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lie, I'll never be happy again. The truth, when you've suffered a tragedy, you might feel that hope is gone, but in time God will fill you with hope and joy and peace as you depend upon Him and trust Him and desire to experience His overflowing hope. He will give you the power to do so by His Holy Spirit. Satan wants you to give up. But God wants to heal you and give you hope. And I'm going to suggest to you again that there's a plan and a purpose. But look at verse 50 quickly. Then they all forsook him and fled. We knew this was going to happen, didn't we? Jesus had predicted it. You're all going to forsake me and flee. They all denied that it would happen. And then they all did. Everyone you would have expected to stand with Jesus is gone. Their nerve cracked. They couldn't face it. They were afraid that they too would share the fate of Jesus and so they fled. Now I want you to think this through. How is it possible that all of that friendship and all of that fellowship and all of that confidence and all of that boast could just suddenly, fundamentally disappear. I want you to think this through. They have been with Jesus not one year, not even two years, but three years. They have seen blind eyes open and deaf ears healed. They have watched the leper being cleansed. They have watched the people time after time experience the grace and mercy, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. They have watched, they have seen Jesus walk on the water. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, it's as if all of those experiences with Jesus, just suddenly disappear. I want to take you back in time, just for a moment. 
as we're in this dark place surrounded by enemies. And Jesus has just healed Malchus. And there is this fundamental sense. And when Jesus has said, you've come looking for me, take me, let these people go. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? What is Peter and James and John, Philip and Matthew, Simon and Bartholomew? What are they thinking? What's going through their mind? What are they thinking? They're thinking. Why won't Jesus defend himself? Why won't Jesus defend himself? Why won't Jesus just simply get rid of all of these people? What is it that Jesus is doing? Why won't Jesus Reveal himself as the Messiah and defeat them permanently and completely. It's the same conversation that I'm sure that you've had at one time or another. Why won't you do this, Jesus? Why won't you heal my mother and my father? Why won't you heal my brother or my sister? Lord, why won't you do exactly what I think needs to be done to prove finally and conclusively that you're the Lord? And they're thinking... He won't defend himself. Then it's every man for himself. And they forgot that Jesus surrendered on the terms that they would be allowed to go free. And sometimes you forget that. That Jesus surrenders and submits to the will of God so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be free, so that you can experience his life and his love, so that you can have friendship and fellowship with him forever. The promise to live for Jesus and die for Jesus is easy when it's a million miles away. Or a million years from now. But what will you do if the threat is real? And the threat is now. By the way, if you really want to know what your friends think about you. Make a mistake. And if you really want to know what your friends think about you. Make a big mistake. Everyone took a step, but no one took a stand. And look what it says in verse 51. Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him. I know what you're thinking. What? What's going on here? Who is this young man, and how did he get there, and why is he naked? Oh, too much information. Let me help you through this. It says, now a certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. The, the word translated cloth is sinden. It's used to describe the simple cloth that was used to bury the dead. Grave clothes. It's used that way in Matthew 27, 59 and Mark 15, 46 and Luke 23, 53. And so I, I want you to think not so much of a kid who's wrapped himself in a sheet, but I want you to think more of a night shirt. If you've ever seen the movie A Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge, he comes out with this long nighty with his little cap, and, and that's probably more of what we have in mind here. 
And some Bible teachers suggest that this is John Mark, the author of our gospel. And like Stan Lee, who invented Marvel Comics, he writes himself a bit role in, in there. You know, it's, it's like, okay, um, you know, Stan Lee invented Spider-Man and all of those other Marvel characters. And when they do television shows or shows, he'll write a little bit part for himself. And so some people think that, that Mark has written a bit part for himself. And let me tell you why I think that makes pretty good sense. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we learn that it's John Mark's home that becomes sort of a base of operations. There there seems to be good evidence that it could very well be that the upper room where the Passover takes place, that there is Jesus, there's the disciples. And remember, they have the Passover, the Last Supper. They leave Jerusalem. They cross the valley. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And if this is John Mark, our author, when Jesus is in the garden and he is praying three times and everybody else has fallen asleep, how does the author know that? Unless he was there. Unless this very, very young man in curiosity, he follows Jesus and he follows him. Another option would be that Judas comes back to the upper room and he puts on his nightshirt and he flees to the garden in order to warn him that the, con- that the crowd is coming to take him away. My friend uh, has another idea. that He, he read, uh, I read Ray Stedman's book, Commentary on this particular passage. And Ray Stedman was the pastor of Peninsula uh, Bible Church. And Ray Stedman believed that this young man may have been the rich young ruler that's spoken of. He, he speculates that maybe when Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell everything that you have and come and follow me, that even though he went away sad, that he changed his mind. He decided that he would do exactly what Jesus said. He gives everything away so that all he has is this miserable little nightshirt. And he follows Jesus from afar. Whoever else it is and whatever else it means... The young man is confronted, he's threatened, he's stripped, and Jesus is abandoned and alone and forsaken. In John 16, 32, Jesus says, and yet I am not alone because the father is with me. But in a few moments, the son is going to come up and he is going to be placed on a cross and he is going to be suspended between heaven and earth. And he is going to quote Psalm 22 and he is going to even say from the cross, Eli, Eli, lava sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a frantic fight. There's a final miracle. And in the garden, Jesus makes a decision that he's going to do God's will, God's way. And it shouldn't surprise you that you're going to be given an opportunity to do God's will, God's way. You know, sin is our most persistent problem. And if sin is the most persistent problem, then self is probably sin's most precious ally. 
We don't often want to do what God wants. We want to do what we want. I read an interesting story. In Illinois, several thousand people every year petition the motor vehicle department to receive the license plate number one. Paul Powell, the Secretary of State, said it's a real problem. He said, we've had 7,000 plus people apply for this license plate. I'm not about to assign it to someone and make thousands of people feel hurt. His solution, he gave it to himself. That's human nature, isn't it? Oh, I guess somebody has to be number one. So what are the lessons for us? Well, Jesus accepts God's will, and he agrees to do God's will. The cross. Jesus receives the terrible kiss of betrayal. The fact that he receives the betrayer isn't really what I want you to focus on. It's that he responds to the betrayal in love. Almost certainly you will be betrayed at some point in your life. The issue isn't whether or not you'll be betrayed. It's how will you respond Jesus submits to the arrest of the mob. He exercises neither natural nor supernatural strength. A miracle takes place, but it is a miracle to correct the foolishness of a, of a disciple and to make sure that all of his fellows go free. Don't you find that interesting? Jesus doesn't exercise the supernatural to avoid capture He is going to depend on his father and he's going to depend upon the angels. And he will demonstrate love and grace and mercy. And he'll do it all by himself. He'll do it alone. You know, Jesus has to go it alone. But you don't. You don't have to. Because there are men and women who are willing to divide the sorrow. You see, we are in a circumstance that's very different from Jesus. There might be a circumstance where we have to go it alone, but it isn't necessarily so. We have this great privilege that we can honor God and serve him and submit to him. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. Think, Christian, for a moment. Jesus is reminding you that you never, ever, ever have to submit to God by yourself. You have the strengthening presence of a loving Lord who's willing to help you. I'm reminded of the poem. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted my worth by the things gained in store. But he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. But he wept as he counted the hours on my knees. And I never knew till one day at a grave. How vain are these things that we spend life to save. Sometimes you'll never, ever, ever understand until all of the chances and all of the opportunities have passed you by. So what will it be? 
Cross or cup? Resist his will or submit to his will? In a few moments, Jesus is going to make the journey for the trials and the execution. But that's for later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, we thank you that even as we sang, we have everything in the cross and there's a reason why we have forgiveness and grace and mercy and everything that we need in order to experience your love and hope and the future. And Lord, for the person who has resisted your will, we pray that they would embrace it. That they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to the Savior. That, Lord, that they would begin to realize that that Jesus is the Lord. And that he didn't resist capture. But submitted to your perfect will. To go to a cross. To pay the penalty for sin. So that we could experience life everlasting. And so, Lord, I pray for that person that they would speak a prayer in their heart. That they would quietly surrender. Say, I'm sorry for my sin. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. And I want to follow Him and know Him and love Him and serve Him. Give me the power so that I can submit to God's perfect plan for my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's